Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you might open up our hearts and our minds and that you might speak to us and that you would give us the grace to be attentive to your voice and that in attending to your voice, we might be changed and molded and shaped to be your people in this world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So if you're joining with us this morning for the first time this morning, we began a new series a couple weeks ago called Centered in the Chaos. And we're talking about how we can center our own lives, our hearts in God in the midst of the chaos that we're in as a culture and our society and whatnot. And so as we kind of uh, dive into this series, we're walking through the book of Psalms as our guide. It's a guide for us on how to center our lives and root our hearts in God. And this morning we come to uh, the longest psalm in the entire catalog of psalms. It's actually the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It is Psalm 119. And as I was getting ready uh, for the sermon this week, I sent my, my sister a message and I asked that she would share with me any kind of insight she had in Psalm 119. My sister is a Hebrew scholar. Uh, she did doctoral work in ancient Semitic languages and all this. So I said, Kara, uh, share with me what you got, you know? And she responded not with any insights from Hebrew, but actually with a quote from the book Jane Eyre uh, by Charlotte Bronte. And uh, the little section uh, she read to me uh, comes uh, from the section where uh, Jane, as a young 10-year-old girl, is interacting with the headmaster of a school who's kind of interviewing her to see whether or not she can get in. And he asks this question. He says, do you read the Bible sometimes with pleasure? Are you fond of it? I like Revelations and the book of Daniel and Genesis and Samuel and a little bit of Exodus and some parts of Kings and Chronicles and Job and Jonah and the Psalms. I hope you like them. No, sir. No? Shocking. I have a little boy younger than you who knows six Psalms by heart. And when you ask him which he would rather have, a gingerbread nut to eat or a verse of psalm to learn. He says, oh, a verse of psalm, angels sing psalms. I wish to be a little angel here below. And then he gets two nuts in recompense for his infant piety. To which Jane responds, psalms are not interesting. And he says to her, well, that just proves you have a wicked heart. Well, if Jane had a problem with the Psalms, she especially would have a problem with Psalm 119. It strikes many people as really, really long, exhausting, somewhat redundant. It doesn't really kind of develop an idea. It sort of just asserts things again and again about the law. And uh, even in my own Bible reading, I, I read about a Psalm each day, and I've been doing this for years, and I kind of cycle through the book of Psalms. But I find myself, when I come to this Psalm, I'm like, oh, Okay, here we go, Psalm 119. It is a long, long psalm. But I think what strikes most modern readers as strange about this psalm is not its length, but its subject. The main subject, kind of the main theme throughout this uh, psalm that is 176 verses is the law of God. This is a prayer. It is a song about God's law. And a little verse that I think kind of captures really a theme that carries through the entire psalm is from uh, a chapter uh, or 119, verse 20, and it says this. This is a translation given to us uh, by an Old Testament scholar named Robert Alter, and he says this. Uh, the, the author says, I pine away desiring your laws in every hour. 
Now think with me for a second. I pine away desiring your laws in every hour. I mean, when was the last time you said that about the law of God? When was the last time you said that about any law? I pine away for it. I mean, what are the kind of things you pine away for? Well, right now you might pine away to be with just people. Uh, maybe, you know, when somebody is deployed and they're in another country, they pine, they pine away for their lost love. You know, but have you ever pined away for God's law? And yet that is what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, I, des- I pine away desiring your laws in every single hour. And I think for modern reason, many of us just think, well, the law, I mean, the laws, they, they're, they're, they hinder us, you know? Rules can hinder our own self-expression. And so if you're a free spirit, rules seem restrictive. An affront to your own sense of agency and our pride in working our own lives out. And I think about, you know, um, a common kind of narrative in a lot of Disney films uh, that's captured, especially in the movie Frozen, is the idea that kind of like uh, there's a young person and they're growing up under the restrictive kind of constricting influence of the tradition and the expectations of their parents or their culture or their society. But then they break free of all of that and then they enter into true freedom because they finally cast off the laws. And, you know, there's that line in the song Frozen You remember uh, the song, Let It Go? Of course you do if you're a parent. Uh, For years, you couldn't get that song out of your head. It just kept being on repeat in the home. But you know that line, it says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. (laughs) Could you imagine a three-year-old singing that song? No right, no wrong, for no rules for me. I mean, that is just terrifying. The little thing's a monster. But that's somehow, sometimes how we perceive God's law is that it can hinder our own self-expression. And of course, rules, laws, they run against our desire for autonomy. Uh, the word autonomy is taken from two uh, different words, auto, namas. Uh, namas is law, and auto refers to the self. And a lot of us, we like being a law unto ourself. We like being in charge of our own lives. We like calling the shots in our own lives. Many of us relate to that that, uh, great line in the movie Star Wars. By the way, tomorrow is May 4th. It is Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. I hope in quarantine you are planning on watching the entire catalog of Star Wars movies from the beginning of the day all the way to the end. But you know, one of my favorite scenes is in uh, A New Hope, the very first of the Star Wars movies. Princess Leia, uh, she's in, in, engaging with Han Solo, and she says, listen, I don't know who you are or where you came from, but from now on, you do as I tell you, okay? To which Han Solo replies, look, your worshipfulness, let's get one thing straight. I take orders from just one person, me. And I think that captures how many of us feel. You know, we like to take orders from one person ourselves. And here, this is a celebration of taking orders from somebody else. It is a song, it's a prayer about submitting your life underneath the rule of God. And how is it that somebody could sing this kind of song? And even as a follower of Jesus, we ask questions about this. We think, well, this guy is celebrating, you know, kind of the glory of God's law. How do we understand that as a follower of Jesus? I mean, isn't the Christian life not so much about rules, but about a relationship? And so how are we to read this psalm that is a celebration of law? 
And so I want to invite you just to carry all of your questions, all of your objections that you might have uh, with me into this psalm. And we're going to look at it underneath three headings. And I want us to note in this beautiful long psalm, number one, the nature of God's law. Secondly, the surprising paradox of God's law. And then finally, we'll look at the transforming dynamic or power within God's law. And so let's begin by looking at the nature of God's law, the nature of God's law. Now, it's interesting. So this psalm is actually an acrostic poem. And so what that means is that each line in the poem begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so uh, there are different examples of psalms like this in the uh, Old Testament. So for example, uh, Psalm 145, it, it's an acrostic poem where each line begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, essentially going from the Hebrew A to Z. But what's interesting about this psalm is that it doesn't just do that once, it does it eight times. And so look at this. It's interesting. Um, with each letter, so at the top you'll see on the screen, that's an alpha, and then at the, the uh, bottom, that's a tov. By the way, I took Hebrew in college, and uh, the only thing I knew at the end of my Hebrew class was the Hebrew alphabet. And ironically, the only thing I knew before I entered into the Hebrew class was the Hebrew alphabet. And so I don't show you this to impress you with anything. Um, I just want you to see this interesting feature. So each stand so this is divided up into 22 different stanzas. Each stanza, every line in the stanza begins with a different letter and successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so it reflects this enormous and beautiful structure. And so it's an immense, it's a massive intellectual achievement. And I think it reflects something about the nature of God's law itself. The structure, the beauty of this acrostic poem uh, reflecting the, the law of God reflects that God's law itself is full of structure and order and beauty. Second thing I want you to note about this uh, lengthy chapter is that the chapter, uh, it has a variety of different terms used to describe God's law. And so, for example, if you just look at the very first passage, it says, uh, blessed is the one whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the one who keeps his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed upon all your commandments. Uh, verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your righteous rules. And then down in verse uh, 9, he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And there are eight different terms that he uses to describe God's law. And what almost all the Hebrew scholars say is that these eight different terms are synonyms. It's different. He's basically uh, calling upon variety because it is the spice of life. It's the spice of the psalm. He kind of changes up the terms, but he uses these same eight terms over and over and over and over again. And the question that many ask is, what do they actually refer to? When he's pining after the law, what is he pining after actually? Now, there's different ways to answer that question. On one level, he could speak about a specific subset of laws within uh, the Bible somewhere. He could be talking about a section uh, of the Bible called the Torah, the first five books, uh, often referred to as the law of Moses. 
But I think he's actually speaking of something broader here. I think what he's talking about in our text is the entire disclosure that God gives to humanity of the moral way of life. I think what he's talking about here is the revealed ethics of God's rule over a person's life. That's what he means by the law of God. Now, a couple things to note and a couple things to know about God's revelation of his ethics for humanity as given to us in the Bible. And the first thing that I want you to note is that the law is revealed progressively. The law is revealed progressively. Now, uh, what we mean by this is that, you know, if you are going to teach a baby how to speak, where do you begin? Well, what you do is you typically begin with where the baby is at and how they mimic sounds. And so the baby, you go in and you say, Baba, Dada, Mama. You know, and then over time, you sort of start to add to the baby's vocabulary. You don't begin with Shakespeare, right? And so too, when God begins to reveal his own law for humanity, his, 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 his relationship initially breaks in with the people of Israel in the midst of a very dark and brutal and violent and polytheistic and confused culture. And so God begins with them, and over time, as he works with his people, he successively and progressively begins to give them more and more light. And then finally, God's fullest disclosure of the light of his ethical standards for humanity is given to us in his son, Jesus. And the highest of the ethical kind of disclosure of Jesus is given to us in the Sermon on the Mount, and so when we talk about the law of God, when he's celebrating the law of God, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about God's revealed way that leads to human flourishing. It's the laws, it's the ethics that actually lead to the good life. And these laws are revealed progressively. But secondly, I want you just to know that these laws are relational. They're not only progressive, but they're also relational. They're always given in the context of relationship, relationship with humanity, our relationship with God, our relationship with the land, our relationship with the animals. And it's interesting, even when you begin to read through the Old Testament, you, you begin to discover that the laws aren't simply about, you know, be a good person, do the right thing. It's really about your obligation toward your neighbor, and toward the land, there are commands like, uh, after you've worked the land for six years, let it rest for a year. Or laws like this, uh, when, you're, when, you're, when your ox is plowing the field, don't muzzle it while it's plowing the field, but let the poor ox eat. It's a land that takes in mind, or it's a law that takes into mind the life of the animal. And so these laws are relational. And of course, they, do, they do deal most centrally with our relationship and our obligations toward our neighbor. And not just to the neighbors that look like us and talk like us, to, but also to the neighbors that are on the margins. Uh, there's there's a, a catalog of commands about how we should treat the widow and the stranger, uh, the immigrants and the orphans. And then when you get into the New Testament, there's the, in the fullest disclosure of God's law, we're, we're called not simply to look after the well-being of our neighbors and our neighbors who are widows and orphans and strangers and all of this, but also even looking after the well-being of enemies. And so this is the full disclosure of God's will for humanity. And so that is the nature of God's law. That is what uh, the psalmist is singing about in our text when he uses this uh, catalog, this potpourri of different terms as he's talking about uh, 
God's will for how humanity ought to live in relationship with each other and with the land and with animals and with God. And most centrally, those ethics are governed by God's command of love because the law itself is grounded in God's own nature and in God's very essence, in his very nature, God is love. And so his law is a reflection of his love and it gets down into the nitty gritty of all of life to say, here is what it looks like to love your neighbor, to love God, to love creation well in this world. So that's the nature of God's law. But I want you to notice in this, uh, in this, in this lengthy psalm, not only the nature of God's law, I want to talk to you for a minute about the surprising paradox of God's law, because I think this is really what made the psalmist sing. Now, I, I think many of us, when we think about God's law, I mean, how do you think about it? Um, I, I think many of, it, many of us think about uh, God's law almost like the way we think about being in quarantine and self-isolation right now. And so how does that work out for us? Well, you know, I mean, uh, slowly the uh, restrictions started to get put in place. First, we couldn't meet in church. Uh, and then uh, we couldn't go to our coffee shops and our restaurants. And then we couldn't even meet for dinner with friends. And then the final straw, as if to finally, like, like take it to the worst extreme, this last week, the governor shut down the beaches in Orange County. Now, I had been going surfing the last several weeks, and so this was a deep blow to me. Now, I, I think, though, I feel about these restrictions like many of you do. Like, I get why they're important. I mean, law and order, it can be good. Uh, it's necessary. We want to protect our neighbors. We want to protect people from the spread of this virus. And so these restrictions are necessary. But I don't particularly like them. Do you? And I think many people feel like about that way with God's law. They think, well, yeah, you know, it's necessary to have law and order. And I guess we need to be constricted and restricted in this world. But, you know, I kind of wish I could just go out and do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want. And then that would be true freedom and true fun. But what's interesting is that that's not at all the way the psalmist feels about the law. And I just want to go through a litany of verses here where the psalmist celebrates God's law. And look what he says. Notice what it says in Psalm 119, verse 14. He says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. He says, the law to me, it's not like quarantine. The law is like winning the lottery. It is like gaining something of immense value. Or as he puts it in Psalm 119, 127, I love your commandments more than gold, more than pure gold. And then he goes on in Psalm 119, verse 103, and he puts it like this. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste. They are sweeter than honey to my mouth. He says, look, he says, God's law, it's not like self-isolation. It's not restricting to me. To me, God's law is like dessert. And then he goes on in Psalm 119, 48. He says, I delight in your commandments because I love them. I reach out for your commandments, which I love. And I think the picture that he has in mind here is of a, of a small child reaching out to the loving arms of a parent. And the psalmist says, that is how I feel about God's law. I, I don't feel like God's law is restrictive and oppressive. I feel like it's reaching out to the arms of somebody I love. And then he says this in Psalm 119, verse 54. He says, your decrees are the theme of my song. 
He says, look, he says, the commandments, he says, they make me want to sing, you know? I'm not complaining about these restrictive, I'm, I'm delighting in them, I'm singing about them. And then he says a little bit further in Psalm 119, he says, I open my mouth and pant longing for your commandments. Again, this isn't something restrictive. The commandments of God, the psalmist says, are like water for a parched soul who is thirsting in the desert. And then he says, finally, in Psalm 119.45, actually, no, we'll stop at 119.54. But I want to just pause, and I want to just talk to you for a second. Like, isn't it interesting that the way the psalmist views uh, the, the law of God, the ethical life that God reveals to us progressively that is relational and, and that, that reveals, that reflects his own love. He says, these laws, he says to me, they're a song. They are water for a parched soul. They're the arms of loving parents. They are dessert. They are like winning the lottery. He says, the law of God is something I cherish and delight in. Now, how could he say that? How could he say that? And I think the reason is, is because he discovered this paradox at the heart of the law that's weird, but it's absolutely true. And it's this. When you let go of your need to control your own life, when you let go of your need to control your kids and your spouse and to carefully manage uh, your own image and how you present yourself, when you, when you let go of your need to control and you actually submit yourself on bended knee to the rule and to the law of God in your life, he says, ironically, paradoxically, against all expectations, what you find is not further constrictions. What you learn is true freedom. You know, because it is uh, May the 4th tomorrow, Star Wars day is coming up. I'm going to have not one, but two Star Wars references in my sermon this morning. But I was thinking about, um, you remember in the first uh, uh, Star Wars movie when Luke is interacting with uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi? Obi-Wan tells Luke that he needs to go to the Dagobah system where he can learn the ways of the force from the Jedi master Yoda. And I remember uh, reading uh, an article a couple years back after the release of not the last, but the previous to the last Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi. And they were talking about the distinction, kind of the, the difference uh, between how the force is viewed in the first three movies and then how the force is viewed in The Last Jedi. And it made the point that in the first few movies, it said that the, the way of the force is uh, something that you had to learn through submission and through apprenticing yourself over a long disciplined season to a master teacher. And then when you get to The Last Jedi, you know, you have a Rey who basically busts out with the force almost as strong as Luke ever knew it without any training. And then at the end of the movie, there are these little kids that are moving around brooms using the force without any training. And they said that, that it almost reflects a mindset shift in our own culture. It used to be thought that you, you, you needed to learn how to live well from a long life of submission and uh, learning and apprenticeship to people who lived well, who knew how to live well. But now we think that the way you enter into the good life is simply by learning to express yourself more fully. You don't need a tradition. You don't need training. You don't need a teacher. But you know, 
That whole idea is, is found bankrupt. It's just not the case. And you and I know that to be true. In order to ultimately enter into the freedom of a Jedi, you have to first enter into a long apprenticeship of learning and training. Or you could put it like this. This is true in our own physical lives, right? So uh, my father-in-law, Larry, I I really admire him and I really admire uh, how he has treated his body over the last several years. And so uh, he entered into this strict training regime, you know, where he starts lifting weights and he has a personal trainer and he goes into working out, or he used to before quarantine, poor guy. But back before quarantine, he would go meet with, you know, a personal trainer and uh, his personal trainer's name was Adrian, you know, and Adrian would tell him what to do. Now, Adrian is about, I don't know, 50 years, uh, Larry's junior, and yet Larry would submit to the tutelage, to the training of Adrian. And Adrian would just punish him. My father-in-law, you know, at 70, was lifting so much weight, it was ridiculous, like five times the amount I could ever lift, which is shocking because, I mean, just look at me. Look at this physique. And I mean, think about five times that, and that's my father-in-law. And uh, I remember talking with him and, and, and saying, you know, I, I really love, you know, how, how well you're treating your body and I want to do that, you know, and he eats well and he does all this. And he said, look, he says, um, I want to be there. You know, he just has uh, two brand new grandsons, Bo and Wade, and he wants to be there for Bo and Wade as they get older and older. He wants to play catch with them. And the only way you can enter into the freedom of going outside and playing catch with your grandchildren or showing up to graduations is if you put yourself under the training and the tutelage of hard work. You know, you look at a master athlete like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or LeBron James, and they don't just step onto the court and, and, and shoot the basketball like that. That is the long end, that kind of freedom on the court only comes at the long end of training and submission and punishing your body and really putting yourself under the tutelage of masters. And what's true for the physical life is also true for our moral and our ethical lives. In order to enter into true freedom, we have to submit ourselves to a law that is objective, that's outside of ourselves, that's bigger than ourselves, that reveals God's love and his wisdom for humanity. To learn that law, to practice that law, and in so doing, after a long life, you actually enter into a life of true freedom. And so, for example... It is only after submitting yourself to the discipline, fidelity in marriage that you can enter into the trust that's built from that discipline, fidelity, and then the intimacy that comes as a result of that, and then the joy you experience on the far end of discipline, fidelity. And of course, it's true in our own lives. Like It's only when we submit ourselves against everything inside of us to make somebody pay back and to speak that mean word and to lunge out at them. It's only when we discipline ourselves to say, no, I'm gonna withhold. I'm gonna extend forgiveness that you enter into something that ultimately breaks the hold of something that's destructive in your life and you enter into the freedom of joy and relationships and you can multiply examples on and on and on. And the psalmist has come to discover this. Look at how he puts it in Psalm 119, verse 45. He says this, I will walk about in freedom for I have sought your commandments. 
Isn't that interesting? He says, look, I am going to walk about in freedom because I have disciplined myself. I've sought, I've trained, I've practiced your law. Or as he puts it in Psalm 119, verse 96, he says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And I think what he's saying there is you think about a wide open space where there's a full field to go out and play and enjoy yourself. And he says, that's God's law. And this is the very beginning, you know, back in the garden, God says, you know, of all of the trees of the garden, you may freely eat. But that one tree that's in the middle of the garden, you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what the psalmist discovers is that, look, the broad life, the life of really entering into freedom and joy is a life living underneath the disciplined rule and authority of God. But you know, I need to be honest with you, sometimes you don't learn that until the long end of obedience. Or as Eugene Peterson phrased it, it comes at the long end of, of obedience in the same direction. And so we've seen something of the nature of God's law and we've seen something of the surprising paradox of God's law that although you might think that by submitting yourself and receiving a law and training outside of yourself is constricting and I don't want that, I wanna do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. He says, look, it's only through a, a disciplined ethical and moral life that you ultimately enter into the freedom of the good life and drew deep and abiding joy. But thirdly, I want you to notice now not only the nature of God's love and the surprising paradox of God's love, but I want you to notice the transforming dynamic in this psalm. So it's interesting. Uh, there are three things that are held together in this psalm, and I just want to point them out to you because I think these three things uh, reveal something of the of the transforming dynamic that exists within these Psalms. So let me begin with a triangle because triangles, you know, they're Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let me just show you this triangle. So it's interesting, in this Psalm, you see reflected three realities that are kind of held together. Number one, there's the reality of radical commitment. Number two, self-awareness. And then three, unconditional love. Notice first, uh, throughout this psalm, there's expressed radical commitments. And so, for example, uh, in chapter, uh, uh, in verse 14 and 15, it says this, I will meditate, I will delight. He says, I will not forget your law. You know, it's interesting, uh, then it says in, in chapter, uh, a little bit further, he says, I will always obey your law forever and ever. And it's interesting to me, he doesn't say I might or perhaps. Uh, this is a real uh, Yoda moment. You know, uh, do or do not, there is no try. He doesn't just say, you know, may, he, he has made a decision. He has decided to orient his life around a rule outside of himself. He has decided to submit himself to the loving, healing rule of God mediated in his laws that he reveals. And he has committed himself to it. I mean, is there a more radical statement of commitment than I will always obey your law forever and ever? But what's interesting is alongside of these statements throughout this psalm of radical commitment, there is also this uh, radical honesty and self-awareness. Um, 
You know, it, it, it's interesting. It says in um, at the the very opening and the close of the psalm, the psalmist brings to speech something that we say in that psalm, come thou fount of every blessing. And you know, the very last line in the psalm, it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And the psalmist expresses this prone, this this inclination, this bent that we have, not only to commit ourselves to God's law, but actually a bent to draw ourselves away from God's law. And notice how he says it in the opening uh, verses in verse five and six. He says this, he says, oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all of your commandments. It's as if he says, look, he says, there's a war within me. He says, on the one hand, he says, I have decided I'm going to follow. I'm going to walk in the way of love. But how many of you have ever made a commitment that you just haven't been able to follow through on? You know, how many of you have ever decided you were going to go on a diet or start working out or start loving your, your, your husband or your wife uh, more fully or, or spend more time with the kids? But, but even after making the decision, you actually find that there are other competing desires in your heart. You know, sometimes you'd rather sleep in. Uh, You'd rather uh, spend more time in front of screens. You would rather uh, be absorbed in your work or you just find this, this competition within you. And the psalmist finds that about his own ethical life. He says, look, I, I want to, I, I will obey. But then he says, I'm prone not to, and I'm ashamed of it. And look at how he closes out the psalm with this phrase. He says this, he says, I have strayed like a lost sheep. This is the final verdict of the whole psalm. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. As if he says, look, he says, the final word over my own life of obedience is this, Lord, it's not how great I've obeyed. It's the fact that I've wandered like a stray sheep and I need you to seek me. And so he holds together his own radical commitment with an honest self-awareness with the many ways in which he himself has fallen short of keeping his, God's law. And yet he holds those two things together with this third radical awareness of God's deep and abiding unconditional love. And look at how it puts it in Psalm 119, verses 76 and 77. He says this, he says, let your steadfast love, that word in Hebrew is the word hesed, and it's, it's the word for covenant love. It's this unconditional, strong bond of love where God commits himself to his people. He says, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. And listen, he is revealing to us something that is so much at the heart of our own life with God and at the Christian life. And it's that genuine change where we are more and more transformed from people who are wandering like lost sheep and more and more being put on the path of life and self-giving love and sacrifice and forgiveness and generosity and holiness and all the things God calls us to that actually equates to the good life. He says that the transformation from wandering to obedience happens in the interface of these three realities of our radical commitment, of our resolve, of our decision, of radical self-awareness, of of becoming more and more aware of the ways in which we fail in our resolve, all underneath the rubric of God's unconditional love. And watch this. 
If you have radical commitment without self-awareness, you know what that produces? It produces Christians, it produces religious people who are intolerably self-righteous because they find themselves, they they justify themselves, they justify their life. The only disobedient behaviors that they're focused on are the things that they are not guilty of. And they highlight those things, they focus on those things, they rally against those things, uh, they sign petitions against those things, they criticize those things on talk radio, and all of the while they ignore, they lack complete awareness with the glaring, ugly ways in which they themselves are failing to move toward people with humility and grace and love and compassion and generosity and hospitality. And what that creates are people that are incredibly, intolerably difficult to be around and ugly. On the other hand, if, if you focus, if you embrace, you know, self-awareness of your own brokenness, but you ignore a radical commitment and a resolve to actually obey and to walk in the way of love, where does that leave you? It, it leaves you bored and complacent. You know, it leaves you as as somebody who goes again and again to worship simply to to feel like, man, I was really beat up today and yeah, we're just a broken mess and oh, we're all just broken and oh, aren't we all just a mess? But there's no real commitment. There's no resolve to actually live into the good and beautiful yoke, the way of Jesus that actually leads to human flourishing. But if you have radical commitments, and self-awareness, but no sense of God's unconditional love, where does that leave you? It leaves you with guilt and shame because you, are, you, you know and you are committed to doing the right thing, but you are completely aware of all of the ways in which you fail in the right thing. And so where does that leave you? You walk around with guilt and shame and you're just uh, embarrassed and you're, you, you wanna hide. But when you experience God's unconditional love, through Jesus Christ in your life, when that reality, when that, when that penny drops in your heart and you begin to taste and experience and feel God's love, that, that though, though you are broken and you're committed, yet you fall short, God loves you still. It is that love that transforms you. You know, what is the kind of relationship that you find yourself in that really is most transforming in your life? I mean, think back that the people who, who, who had the biggest influence on your life, that coach, that teacher, a parent, a spouse, it was somebody who had, they were radically committed to you growing into being a bit different and better person. And they were also somebody who knew you deep down. They were aware of your flaws. And yet, in light of all of that, they loved you still. And it was in that unconditional love that it gave you the space to grow and actually become a better, different person, isn't it? And friends, this is what Jesus invites us into. A life where he expects the best of us. He calls us to radical obedience, to a radical life of self-giving love. And yet he is fully aware of all the ways in which we fail that. And yet in the midst of it, in the tension of that, he loves us unconditionally and without fail. 
And this week, may you live into that love and may it give you the courage to grow both in self-awareness as well as in radical obedience. Let me just close in prayer. And I'm just gonna pray over us that God would continue to work this into our lives in a very real way. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we come to you, God, with the words in this psalm that we are prone to stray from you. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would seek us out. And I pray, O oh God, that wherever you may find us sitting in our bedrooms or our living rooms or the kitchen or whatever, God, I pray that you would seek us out, that you would make us more aware of those areas in our own life where we're broken and a mess. Would you continue to stir and stimulate our own desire for obedience to submit ourselves to you? And would you overwhelm us with a sense of your will and your love for us, oh God, that we might be those people who practice your good way in this world. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.